Like Josh said, we are back in the book of John. And uh, if you have your Bible, you want to turn to John chapter 1, we will be there in just a moment. Three weeks ago already, Dan Morris, Mr. Dan Morris, started us in the book of John. And I love the way he presented it. Many of you know that John is slightly different than the other Gospels. You have the Synoptic Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then you have John. And um, those Synoptic Gospels, there's a lot of the same stories, a lot of similar um, a lot of similar narrative throughout that, and John approaches it just a little different. The way that Dan put it was that um, with these synoptic gospels, like when you have the book of Matthew, you see the line of Christ coming through King David. It's kind of this ground-up approach where you see his humanity. You see in Luke, you have the Christmas story and the birth of Christ. But John approaches it a little different. Dan said it's kind of a top-down thing where you get the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there in the beginning. You get the eternal nature of Christ. You get the eternal nature of Jesus. Instead of his humanity and the birth being brought forth, it's this uh, painting this picture of his eternal godliness in the book of John. I was reading a pastor this week, actually listening to a sermon uh, this week, and this pastor um, was pointing to the book of John. A lot of times when you're preaching Christmas, you're going to go to Luke, or you're going to go maybe to Matthew, but you, but you can very effectively, this pastor was saying, you can very effectively preach Christmas in the book of John because of this beautiful phrase, and it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You could preach Christmas even though you're not starting with a manger. You're not starting with shepherds. You're not starting with wise men or a star. But you can very effectively preach Christmas out of the book of John because of the phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and ultimately became the sacrifice for our sins as we just celebrated and also became that resurrected victor declaring that all is being completed and finished in him because flesh dwelt among us, because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So today we continue on, and uh, often as I like to do, I like to ask you guys a question to start a sermon, and so today I want to ask you this. What is the most impressive arena or stadium you've ever been in? Okay, maybe for some of you it's Lambeau Field, right? It's hard to top Lambeau Field, the mystique that's around Lambeau Field. Maybe it's Fenway. Maybe you're a big baseball person. We've got some folks in our congregation that have a goal of driving around and seeing all of the stadiums and to compare them. Maybe it's you know Yankee Stadium or Fenway. That has the grand nature to it. Maybe it's the site of the last Green Bay Packers Super Bowl, right? AT&T Field down in Dallas, Jerry World, they call it. I've got a couple of arenas that I've been in in my life that were really impressive. Uh, the one, I've seen the Colosseum in Rome. I've been in there. I've been taking the tour. We had an opportunity on a mission trip to Rome uh, to see the Colosseum. But for our first anniversary, my wife and I, we were married a year. We were actually in Italy for a, for a decent amount of time. And we got to spend our first anniversary in Verona. Verona, Italy. And in Verona, there's this beautiful Roman arena where they actually, through the summertime, they have operas. And so on our anniversary, we went and saw an opera in this ancient Roman arena. It was beautiful. Like anything you could just picture and hope for, like, like people standing and applauding, yelling bravo at the end of it, like legit, like it was awesome. 
reading their programs by candlelight. There's no amplification, right? This thing is it was centuries old. There's no amplification. It's just the crowd hushes and they belt it out in the night sky. It was just so cool. Very impressive, very grand. But what's the most impressive or grand arena you've ever performed in? Maybe you're a badger. Maybe it was Camp Randall. Maybe you've performed in that arena before. Maybe you've actually performed or done something in Lambeau Field. Maybe it was Taraska Stadium right here for the Arrowhead Warhawks. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. It was like just lobbing one up there for Dan. Maybe it was Notre Dame for the Baton Twirling National Championship. That was my wife. That was a shout-out for my wife, because some of you don't know this, but my wife is a national champion baton twirler. You'll have to ask her about that later. You have an arena. You have a platform. You have a stage, and it might not be as grand or important or impressive as a Roman arena in Verona, Italy, It might not be even as impressive as Camp Randall or Lambeau Field. It might actually seem pretty normal. It might actually seem pretty fair. But you have a stage and a platform in an arena, and it's called your life. It's a place where people watch you every day. It might not be 70 to 80,000 people like Lambeau. It might not be a few thousand people like your high school stadium. Heck, it might not even be a few hundred or a few dozen people. It might actually be the five or six people that you sit down with dinner with every night. You have an arena. You have a platform to proclaim something. Your life is that arena to reveal and proclaim to the world, your little world, the only way of salvation, which is Jesus. To boldly and clearly proclaim to your world that he is the gate to eternal life. And today we're going to look at a man that exemplified this so well. And I'd like to um, highlight this man first and foremost by um, what maybe uh, he may be most Uh, beautifully described, best described by the songwriting genius of DC Talk back in 1995. Listen. There was a man from the desert with naps in his head. The sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume there wasn't too much left in the upper room. Do you guys know what I'm saying right now? You guys know this song? No? This isn't as funny as I thought it was. First service thought it was funny. With skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locusts he ate. The Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak until the king took the head of this Jesus freak. Of course, we're speaking of John the Baptist. In your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. We'll start in verse 19 today. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, and John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across from the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray before we do anything else. And like I've done a few times over the last couple of weeks, I want you guys to pray. I try to practice uh, something similar to this with my kids at home, where I want you to actively participate in this moment. I want you to actively participate in your expectation for what God has in this service. I don't want just Pastor Kevin to pray and you guys just kind of, you know, let me do the thing. You pray a sincere prayer before your God right now of what God might do in your heart through his word and by his spirit. You pray. Father, I pray that you would answer those prayers. God, you know the stories of everybody in this room. You know the situations that they're facing. You know the distractions in their heart and in their mind. You know the challenges that they face. God, I pray that today, by the power of your spirit, through your word, God, that you would change us, transform us, and cause us to be your people. Cause us to be your church. God, cause us to be more beautifully focused on you, your gospel, and the beautiful mission that you've given us. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin, Mary and Elizabeth, the mother of Jesus and the mother of John the Baptist. They were cousins, so I don't know if that makes them second cousins or first cousins once removed. I don't know exactly how that works, but they were related. John the Baptist is gaining popularity Great crowds are following him. He's got disciples. He's out in the wilderness. And these Jews come to him. They're sent by the Pharisees to find out what's this guy all about. People are going out to the wilderness to see this crazy preacher. These priests have to check him out to see what he's up to. And I don't think that their motives were necessarily pure. You know, the Pharisees, they were always looking at ways to trap Jesus. They were always looking for ways to trap people like John the Baptist. They were asking him, who are you? Because if he claims to be the Christ, or if he claims to be Elijah, they could probably get him for blasphemy, right? Because guys like John the Baptist who are preaching and proclaiming Jesus, they're upsetting the religious culture. They're upsetting the religious structures. 
If he admits to be the Christ, if he admits to be Elijah the prophet, they could get him for blasphemy. But what's his testimony? What does he say about himself? He says, I am not the Christ. I'm not the prophet. I'm not Elijah. I am not the Christ. And I was reading a preacher this week, and uh, he said that there's a subtlety to the Greek here, where it's not just, I am not the Christ, but it's, I am not the Christ, implying that maybe somebody amongst them actually is the Christ. That there's a subtlety to the Greek there that he's saying, I'm not the Christ, but there's someone, and he says it here, there's somebody amongst you. There's somebody amongst us who is the Christ. He says, actually, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. There's a couple of times here where he actually says, I didn't know him, which can be a little bit confusing because right if they're cousins, what does he mean by that? Verse 30 says this, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, uh, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. Verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remained, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John and Jesus are cousins. And so for maybe the first 30 years of their life, John didn't recognize who Jesus was. It's unlikely that he did not, he just didn't know him because they were cousins. Particularly in that area of the world, man, family was everything. Families did a lot of things together. It wasn't uncommon for you to live with multiple generations of family in your house. And, and for him to like say that I didn't know him, I think what he's pointing to is I did not recognize him for who he really was. He was just my annoying cousin for the first 30 years of my life, right? Maybe the, the cousin that did everything right, the goody two-shoes that overachieved at everything. But when the Holy Spirit revealed it to him, the one who my spirit comes down descends like a dove, the one who my spirit comes down and rests on, that's the guy. That's the Messiah. That is the spotless lamb that is going to die for the sins of the world. He didn't recognize him at first, but the Lord himself reveals it to him. The one in whom my spirit descends like a dove, that's my spotless lamb, that's the Messiah, that's the one that all of Israel has been yearning for. He's going to be slain as the hope of the world. Verse 23 of our text today. John quotes Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 3 says, uh, in verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, right? He says, I am not the Christ, but I'm the one that was prophesied. Interesting, right? It's so crazy to think, like the, the prophet Isaiah spoke of John the Baptist about 700 years earlier. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. There's something interesting here in the Greek, actually. Make straight. The word straight there, <clears throat> uh, it's euthino. And it means I make straight. And it's speaking of the direction of the road, not the surface of the road. When I read that, when I read that in the Greek, I, it, it, it captured me for a moment. 
right? It's the direction of the road is straight, but not the surface of the road necessarily. How many of you know that in life, in our walk with Christ, the surface of the road is often kind of bumpy and rough, right? And so like in John's preaching, right, to make straight the way of the Lord is that it is so clear, but it's not necessarily easy. It's so clear that the way is Jesus, but it's not going to be a cakewalk necessarily. It's clarity, not ease. The surface of the road might be bumpy, it might be rough, it might be rocky, rut-filled, but it's straight and it's only through Jesus. The one in John chapter 14 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Makes me think of Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, where Jesus is speaking. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Speaking of himself, he is that gate. There's a costly nature to the free gift of salvation. There's a costly nature to being a disciple of Christ. The way is straight, but the surface of that road may be a bit bumpy. John cried out, repent, And he practiced the baptism of repentance to turn from former life, to turn from sinful living, and to follow in Christ. Reminds me of Matthew chapter 16, verse 24, a very familiar passage. When Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. That's pretty costly. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? This beautiful free gift of salvation, merely putting your faith in the person and the work of Jesus. We've talked about it extensively over the last couple of weeks. And yet, and yet, to follow, to actually be a disciple of Christ means that we hand it all back to him in beautiful worship. In beautiful worship not to earn or gain any of his favor or merit because that can't be done. But as beautiful worship, we hand our lives back over to him. My prayer, I I say this often in our bedtime with our kids, that everything I am and everything I have belongs to Christ. When he lays hold of you, when, when you see the reality of salvation, when you realize that you've been purchased by his blood, everything belongs to him. Even in our giving, even in our tithes and offerings. You know, there are a lot of times there's a tension with that going, oh, well, how much do I have to give? Okay, is it a tithe? Is it a true 10%? Is it whatever? It's all his. Every bit of it, every last penny was given to you by God. Now you wrestle through, what does he want me to give back? How does he want me to use it? Do I need to buy that thing? Like, a lot of times we go, okay, here's 10% for you, 90% is mine. 90%, no, that's not it. Are you kidding me? You still got to fight and wrestle through all that 90% as well. Am I using it wisely? Am I investing it in the kingdom? Am I spending it silly? I said stupid. I can't say stupid. My kids are in the room. 
I have to wrestle through all of that because everything I have and everything I am now belongs to Christ. John says, I'm the one. Make straight the way of the Lord. I'm the voice of the one crying out of the world. Make straight the way of the Lord. When we preach Jesus, we make it clear. We make it straight. It's only through faith in Christ that any man is saved. We don't preach a way of ease and comfort. We don't preach a gospel that is false or incomplete. We preach Jesus, simply Jesus, and faith in him. And I think there's a lot of stress. Like, as individuals, there's a lot of stress that, like, we have to... We have to make it complicated, or we have to make it like grand, or we have to make it this like to share Christ or to share our story. A lot of times we overcomplicate it. Christ has done a work in your life, Christ is doing a work in your life. You have a beautiful story, a testimony. And each one in this room is different, and it's awesome and beautiful, but, but each one of our testimonies in this room are exactly the same. You were dead, and He made you alive. That's it. You were dead in your sin, destined for hell. But because of his mercy and grace, and because of his great love for you, he made you alive. That's the story. And all you got to do is say, we, we, there's this temptation to overcomplicate it. But there's power in simply saying, Christ is all. Jesus is is everything. There's a story that I came across this week about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon's a great uh, preacher uh, back in the 1800s. And, um, and I love to read his stuff. There, I, I, you've heard me quote him before. Um, but he lived back then where there was no amplification. There was no microphones or anything like that. And so he would preach in these grand, beautiful churches. And a lot of times when he would go to a new venue, if he was speaking at a, at a particular uh, new venue or engagement, he would go into the room before anybody else and he would test out the acoustics of the room. And, and there's a story that he was at this one engagement, this one church or this one arena, and he's there, and he simply proclaims what John the Baptist proclaimed. He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's just testing the acoustics. And so he repeats it over and over and over again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of... Over and over. He doesn't realize it, but the story goes that there's a maintenance guy in the back of the auditorium. Knelt down, crouched down, maybe scraping something off the floor or tightening a screw of some pew or something. And this maintenance worker's there. And he's just hearing this phrase over and over again. And in that moment, he crumbles before God and receives Jesus as his Savior. It's not overly complicated. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Don't overcomplicate it. Don't overcomplicate it. You have a beautiful testimony of what Christ has done for you. Proclaim it. Boldly proclaim it. Let's get back to our text. Verse 29, John 1. The next day, Jesus coming toward him and said, uh, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, On he whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen him and have bore witness that this is the Son of God, my annoying cousin. Okay, maybe it wasn't annoying. My cousin is actually the Son of God. And he says there, uh, in verse, uh, verse is it? Verse thirty-one. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, that he might be revealed to Israel. John's purpose, right, to reveal Jesus, to testify of Jesus, to point to him, saying that this is the Son of God, the Redeemer of mankind. His purpose is the same as our purpose. His purpose is the same as your purpose and my purpose, to reveal Jesus, to testify of Jesus, that he is the Son of God and the Redeemer of mankind. Have you embraced your true purpose? I fear that some of us are lost, and not necessarily like lost for all eternity, like there's a lot of believers in this room I think that have lost our way when it comes to our purpose. We lose focus on our purpose all the time. A lot of times I, I look at my life and I go, it's really easy to compartmentalize it, to, to put it into buckets, to put it into silos. Here's church life, here's family life, here's work life, here's whatever. Like I put it in my buckets because then it's far more manageable. But there's something beautiful, but like you've been purchased by the blood of Jesus, all of those buckets become redeemed. All of those buckets become a beautiful context for the sake of the glory of Christ. Your job and career was once about money and paying bills and investing. But your job and career under the lordship of Jesus becomes the beautiful arena for you to declare and reveal Christ. Your family used to be about having a good, stable marriage, raising good, successful, well-adjusted kids. But under Christ, under the lordship of Christ, it's about revealing the gospel and Jesus to those precious little lives that he's entrusted you with. Like I said, the arena of your life might not be 70 to 80,000 like Lambo. It might be the six people sitting around your dinner table. God's placed you there on purpose for his glory. It's not an accident that you're in the cubicle that you're in. It's not an accident that you're in the workplace that you're in. You might even hate it. You might dread it. You ever been in a job that you dread? It's not fun. It's not fun at all. Sorry to tell you this. God might have you there for a purpose. Might not be to have fun. Might not be even to make a lot of money. There might be one guy there that needs to hear Jesus. That might be it. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake that God has you where he has you at this time in life. Do you know why you went through COVID? I don't know why we went through COVID. But God's got a purpose for it. We were in a pre-service prayer meeting, and, and, or was it spirit-led? I don't remember. But somebody was like talking about, uh, spirit-led actually, somebody was talking about COVID. 
And like most of us, we were just like, ah, COVID, let's be done. Oh, I can't wait to be done. And they just basically like just shared how like God's doing something in this. God's doing something grand and vast. And instead of sitting like a pouty teenager going, oh, I can't wait for this to be done. Why not just like open your eyes and sit back and go, God, what are you doing? Like you're teaching me, showing me. You're accomplishing something on a very personal level in me, but you're probably accomplishing something on a very grand level in your church for the sake of the gospel. Instead of sitting like a pouty teenager, maybe I should live my purpose. Maybe I should engage my God with the purpose that he has given me. Your life is the grand arena to reveal Jesus and to make the path to Jesus straight, to make it clear. I've said it before, the gospel is paramount. Everything else is either context or idolatry. When you're purchased by Jesus, the gospel is paramount. It's everything. And everything else then in your life either becomes context for the gospel or becomes the thing that competes with the gospel. Your job can be an idol. If it's just money and it's just bills and it's just investment and not the glory of Jesus. Your family, our families, as beautiful and precious as they are, can be an idol. Or it can be the beautiful arena for the sake of Jesus. As we wrap up, our very first week we talked about the word. Jesus, the perfect, eternal one. He is that perfect, visible image of the invisible God. As it says in Colossians chapter 1, let's read that really quick. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him. And by the way, for him. All things created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. Praise God. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. That he might be paramount. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the Word. And just like John the Baptist's confession, right? Just like his um, confession here that we read today in our text, he says, I am not the Christ. I am not the word, but I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. We need to have the same confession. I am not the word, but I have a voice. I've been given a voice and a beautiful arena to proclaim the majesty of Christ. You're not the word, but you are a voice. Are you living the purpose, the God-given purpose of proclaiming Jesus. You have an arena, a beautiful context, 
a beautiful life that you've been blessed with. It might not be this grand thing. It might not be a wilderness like John the Baptist, but it's a platform to declare Christ, to reveal that he is the Son of God. Can't help but think that some of us in this room today probably need to repent. That maybe some of us in this room today, you haven't embraced that beautiful, beautiful calling in Christ. And it's easy. It's easy to lose our way. It's easy to get lost in the mix. It's easy to get lost in the American dream, honestly. Everything you have and everything you are belongs to Christ. Live it. Proclaim it. Preach it. That's our calling in Christ. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I would encourage you, keep responding to the Holy Spirit today. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this crazy man in the wilderness who made straight, who made clear the way of the Lord. God, I pray that we would also be a voice, maybe not in the wilderness, maybe in Delafield, maybe in Neshota, maybe in Wales. We would be a voice in our workplace and in our families. Boldly, beautifully, clearly, not overcomplicating that Jesus is the Son of God. The only way to salvation. That our words and our lives would so beautifully declare that. Help us be your church. God, help us be your church. By the power of your spirit, God, help us actually be your church, not just in four walls on a Sunday morning. Tomorrow morning when we wake up, God, let us be your church. Tuesday morning when we wake up, God, let us be your church. Father, let us be your church. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Let's stand and let's sing together.